thank you for joining us today for the Conform to Christ podcast, where we seek to engage the mind, affect the heart, and call people to follow Christ. My name is George Mays, and with me is Jay Jones. Hello. Hey. How's it going? It's been like two weeks since I've been in here. Yeah. I feel <clears throat> out of practice. Still know, still know how to do it? We'll, we'll find out, it's won't been, we? And like a whole summer almost for... Text Driven Tuesday. Yeah, so this is Text Driven Tuesday. Uh, first time since the end of May, I think. We yeah. took a little bit of a... We did like a, maybe a one. Yeah. One on uh, Ephesians. We did one on Aliens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fun times. But we're back. We're back from our uh, summer break. Did you have a good summer, Jay? Mm-hmm. And you see how tan I am? <laughs> this is real tan for me, George. Look at this. Yeah. Look at that. Look at that line. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Yeah, that'll, that'll white out the camera if I show, if I pull that up. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah, I had a good summer. Yeah. That's good. A lot of baseball, all that. A lot of baseball. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Man, um, you see what's going on in the world? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's... Uh... Not great. No, maybe we can talk about it Friday. Yeah. Pretty sad images today of people trying to get out of there, mm-hmm. holding on to that airplane and like falling off the airplane and yeah, all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, I saw that. Mm. Tough, man. People in danger. Churches in danger over there. Mm-hmm. Women. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, lots, uh, lots to talk about. Mm-hmm. Lots to talk about. So we're we're back to uh, having text driven Tuesday and free for all Friday. That's the plan. So yeah. we'll be back on our regular schedule. Um, so hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be able to be a benefit to people who listen. Mm. So um, we'll leave text. We'll leave free for all Friday for Friday, and we'll uh, we'll look at text driven Tuesday. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, you are back in John. Yeah. Back in John. It's been it's been a little while. Goodness, back in John. Time, yeah. This last time you Probably. were John was in April? Probably. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because I went, then you went, and then it was summertime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Be finishing up this year, maybe, looks like. You think so? Possibly. All right. If, it, if not this year, February, January, okay. February. Yeah. It's getting close. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. So, uh, so back in John, um, we have uh, moved past the uh, what the the dialogue, the discourse, uh-huh. right? Yeah, um, these long, lengthy um, teaching sections, mm-hmm. and now we're going to be focusing primarily on narrative. Yep, right? a lot of narrative now moving forward. Yep. Uh, so we're in chapter eighteen. Chapter eighteen. Um, so we'll we'll be looking at verses one through eleven today and this is the betrayal of jesus yeah his arrest mm-hmm. all right so you want to set this up for us <clears throat> sure you read it yeah I'll, it I'll read it okay. so i'll just set it up so okay. here's here's where we are um it is the evening of jesus arrest now to get here as george just said we came out of a long narrative section which is 13 through 17 or uh, disco- like many of these discourses of Jesus talking at yeah. great length. And uh, that's that's uh, Jesus 
private ministry to his disciples. The first part of the book is open and public, 1 through 12. Signs, there's these signs that Jesus does, a lot of narrative. Then this private teaching him setting up his disciples, preparing them for, for ministry as, as he, he knows what's about to take place and trying to prepare them for all of that. It's an incredible section. He, he prays the high priestly prayer in John 17. And then he leaves with his disciples, goes to um, the Garden, which we know is the Garden of Gethsemane. He crosses the Brick Hedron, heads east out of the Temple Mount area there, and he finds a, he goes to a garden. And that's where this all takes place. Uh, right bef- it's right before he gets arrested, and as he gets arrested in the garden, that's what... That's where we are. He'll then be taken to the Jews for trials, and then he'll be taken from the Jews to the Romans for trials, and then Pilate will eventually hand him over to be crucified. Okay. I was, uh, while you were preaching yesterday, I was showing uh, some pictures to Phineas. Mm. He leaned over. Is the Garden of Gethsemane still there? Mm. So I pulled up some pictures, told him, probably not the original. Right. Yeah. A lot's happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> Romans Romans kind of cut down all the trees yeah. around Jerusalem, um, but there is there's a there's a garden. Yeah, there. Uh-huh. Um, so looked at some pictures, trying to uh, show him the the setting. Yeah, these are historical places. Yeah, right. All right. Well, do you want to read the passage and then okay. we'll uh, then we'll talk about it? All right. Eighteen, okay. in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of, Those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? All right, so 18 through 20, Mm. we're getting into um, real familiar territory. Yeah. Like if you've grown up in church, you've heard these stories. Um, and I always, I always tell people that's that's a dangerous place for us to be when we mm-hmm. come to these familiar stories, um, because we just we we come to them thinking I know I know all of this, I know everything that that's going on, yeah, because I've heard this since uh-huh. I was you know a, a little kid mm-hmm. in Sunday school. Um, so it's important for us to slow down and and really look, right, and um, and. We need to humble ourselves, right, in a sense. Um, so that's what that's what you did um, in your sermon on Sunday was you slowed down mm-hmm. and you made six observations um, in this text, and um, they help us to 
to really try to to understand and grasp what's going on, mm-hmm. not just in an information way, but so that we might truly grasp um, the depths of human depravity, mm-hmm. but also the riches of of God's grace and uh, and the love of Christ, and and that was your aim, mm-hmm. right? To um, to to help us to better know know who God is, mm-hmm. know who we are, know Christ's grace and His love, um, and so we've got six observations. Yep, um, from this text, and I'm sure you probably could have made some more if you'd mm-hmm. really, if you'd done the uh, Martin Lloyd Jones yeah. route. <laughs> Here's thirty observations <laughs> from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so. Uh, let's let's just walk through them. I won't I won't give the list up front. We'll just walk through them. Okay, how's yeah. that sound? That's All better. Right. That's kind of how we did it. Was we uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Okay, so the first observation is that there is a significance to the setting. Yeah, um, and we had community group on Sunday afternoon, so I was asking asking them how many of you have uh, have thought of it this you know this way before, um, and it was it was new for quite a few people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it should, once you explain it, it should just make perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So what's the significance of the setting? So Jesus goes out to a garden um, on, on purpose, it would appear. This is a place he would go to a lot with his disciples. The text tells us that, gives us a little clue. Judas knew that he used this place because he used it a lot with his disciples. Yeah. So it appears that you know crowds like to be around Jesus and... Possibly he knew someone who owned an oil press business uh, that owned this garden. Um, the text seems to indicate, if you look at all the Gospels, that this is a place you could enter and exit like it was enclosed of okay. some kind. So probably, and, and the, the meaning of Gethsemane is oil press, which I think there's even significance in kind of what that means. Yeah, You can see the weight that Jesus is under as he enters this place. Um so a, there's a garden, and uh, it may at first, if you just you know read, you know like oh it's just a garden. There's gardens all over. Well, if you read through this section, which you know from talking with me this past week, when you kind of want to look at something fresh, you just got to read it over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> right. So this big section, um, going all the way through his crucifixion. If you do that, what you'll find is that John emphasizes the garden at least three times. Here in eighteen one ten, there's a mention of this garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, in nineteen forty one, he uh, the text tells us that there was a garden near where Jesus was crucified, and they took his body down and they buried him in a garden. Right. And then in twenty fifteen, Mary goes to uh, she she goes to Jesus to to do the uh, cleansings or whatever the ritual stuff was, and the body's not there, and she's looking around and she sees a man. She thinks it's she doesn't know it's Jesus. She doesn't recognize him. She thinks it's the gardener. And so that's emphasized. The garden three times, the gardener. And so it appears that there is some type of uh, lesson to be learned around the garden. And I'm not the first one to see that. Remember, I came in your office and I said, hey, you see this? You uh-huh. see uh, this is, goes back to uh, early church history, because right. I think it's there. It's a reason, yeah. and it's because there's a legitimate connection. There's a contrast being drawn between uh, the first garden, the Garden of Eden, and the first gardener, who was Adam, right. first our representative, our, our federal head, 
and Jesus, who's the last Adam, mm-hmm. and so this all all of this unfolds around this garden right. scene. Yeah, like Jesus is in a garden, wrestling with will he obey God or not. That's where we find ourselves in eighteen one through through now, eleven. Now hold up, Jay. Are you telling me that the whole Bible tells one unified story? Right. Is that what you're? Yeah. Is that what you're trying to? Yeah. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yeah. It's important. It it's is important, important for for us to remember. Um, if you've never thought of it this way, to to pick up on these these little verbal cues mm-hmm. um, that they're they're tying the story together. Yep. And this is um, again, this is showing the um, the divine inspiration of the scriptures. Um, it's showing God's sovereignty over history, mm-hmm. um, and so it helps us to understand the complete storyline of the Bible. It is interesting to think about how God communicates who He is and uh, His nature and who we are. How would a divine mind that's infinitely greater than ours communicate to humans? So it appears that He does so through repeated patterns unfolding through history. Right. Right. Um, how can you do that unless you <laughs> unless you actually write history? Right. Unless you're the one who's decreed all things yeah. in from the beginning. Right. Um, so that's that's something that's very uh, interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's clear that he's doing that. Right. right. There's typology and patterns. There's legitimate ones. There's also illegitimate ones, right? You've heard uh, like... Um, Oh, uh, the golden thread that Rahab. The, the she let down a scrim, a crimson, a scarlet, scarlet. Yeah, and scarlet. that shows that's the blood of Jesus. And uh-huh. there's all these ones that people can draw Ill- in an illegitimate way, mm-hmm. but there's really legitimate ones yeah. that are, I think, clear. Yeah, and so, and you can pick up on that on how the disciples themselves mm-hmm. will show us kind of how to interpret these things. Right. So. Right. But you have to pay attention, mm-hmm. right? And you have to read the Bible. It's it's good to read the Bible from Genesis one to Gen- uh, Revelation twenty two, um, you know, to see how it unfolds, to see the story. Yeah. Um, if you're just jumping around, that, you're not going to be able to grasp it quite as easily. Yeah. So it's, it's good to read just from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's for sure. So it, what's what? Why should we care? Why should we care that Jesus is in a garden? Why should we? Why should someone say, "I've never seen that before," but you know, it's it's interesting. But what does it matter? Is there is there something that we should we should latch on to? Like this is important for yeah. for me. Yeah, I think it's important because um, what we see is that Jesus is a perfect representative for his people. I think that's kind of what we can see as we as we look at this. Not only that, I mean you can we'll get into it more as we talk about him being birthed out of a tomb in a garden later, right? Like mm-hmm. what is that is that symbolize something? I think it does. I think it symbolizes new creation okay. being born out of a garden. Yeah. Like the old, you know, all there's all kinds of symbology that's there, I think. Um but in this case, as he goes, there's, you know, we in John, there's kind of a gap. You have to go to the other Gospels to get mm-hmm. the other information. Right. So he goes in the garden, and then Judas shows up. Well, what <laughs> happened in between? Right. Well, what happened in between is that Jesus came under really great temptation and incredible stress mm-hmm. and pressure to to fold. Yeah. 
to disobey his father. Um, he knows better than any what's coming. Yeah. You know, he's, as we'll see, you know, I don't think he was afraid to, to die physically, yeah. though, though probably to a degree there was that natural fear that any man would face. Yeah, I mean, that. no one wants everyone. To, yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone then had seen a crucifixion. Yeah. He knows what's going to happen. So there's that element, but that's not really the great stress he's under. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows what what he's been sent here to do, and but he comes to grips with it, and he surrenders his will totally to the Father, and he does that three times. Yeah. Falls on his face, prays, commits himself, goes back, and he's like, I, I asked you guys to stay awake with me. Couldn't <laughs> even stay awake for a little while. Yeah. Goes back, he, and then he begins to sweat drops of blood, um, a real condition. Right. A rare, incredibly rare condition, but it also shows he's really a human. Yeah. Again, in so many ways, it's explicit. Jesus was a human, and that's one of them. He's sweating, sweating blood. Yeah. Um, but there's all of these contrasts that can be made. Now, A.W. Pink has this incredible paragraph of these comparisons. Some of them are good. Some of them, I think, are a little bit uh, creative. <laughs> You yeah. know what I mean? Uh-huh. But they're, they're, it's pretty amazing how many he can draw. But if you just think about it, like if you just sit down and you say, let's compare Jesus. He, you know, We're told he's the second Adam, so he represents his people. Mm-hmm. He's totally obedient. He's perfect. He's fulfilled the law. He's nothing but love and obey his Father. Let's compare him to the first Adam. Well, if you just do that, there are some you come up with, and that, these are the ones that I said. Our first parents talked with Satan in the garden, and they fell. Jesus talks with his father and he obeys. Our first parents are willing to disobey even if it costs them their lives. That's one that kind of hit me. They know it's going to happen. God's told them they're willing to disobey even if it means they die. Jesus is willing to obey even if it means that he dies. And Adam, our representative, was conquered through temptation, and Jesus is victorious through temptation. And our first parents rebelled in a garden and they planted the seeds of the kingdom of man. I think this is a theme that John is tracing out between these kingdoms, the kingdoms of the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, and who the king is. Uh, and Jesus obeys in the garden, planting the seeds that will grow into the kingdom of God. So there's two gardens, there's two representatives of humanity. There's two kings even present, Adam and Christ. There's two kingdoms. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the uh, the so that's the first observation: the significance of the setting. The second observation is that of the earthly kings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's uh, what's going on here? So John gives more detail on the resting party than the others, and just really by a simple word, the yeah. word in English, sold soldiers. That Judas procured a band of soldiers. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, but what the word actually is is cohort. Okay. No one in English knows what cohort is, so they just put soldiers. But what a cohort is, is it's a group of Roman soldiers. Okay. So there's a group of Roman soldiers numbering at least 200, maybe more, and there are Jewish police, policemen, because Jews are not permitted to have soldiers because mm-hmm. they're under occupation of Rome. But they could have temple police, and the temple police are there uh, on behalf of the chief priests and the Pharisees, meaning the aristocracy, the Jewish elite class, those who are in power of the Jews. And so Judas comes with this group, um, numbering at least 200, to arrest Jesus like he's some kind of like warlord. <laughs> right. Because this is the, le- the legit mm-hmm. 
fighting force of Rome. Right. These are real soldiers. Okay. And they come to arrest Jesus, this regular Jewish man, like he's a warlord or something. Yeah. Um, and and uh, John, again, he emphasizes they come to him with torches and with weapons and swords. Um, it's, I think, a picture of the kingdoms of man coming against Jesus. Mm. And I think that's the uh, that w- what we that's how we need to take it because that's how I think the disciples interpreted what was happening because they quote they quote from Psalm two and Acts four. So in Acts four, um, after Peter is arrested, Peter and John and they're commanded not to preach, and they're like, whatever, we're going to do what we want. You know, we have to obey God rather than man. They let them go eventually. They go back to the church. Church celebrates. They begin to pray. And as they begin to pray, they quote Psalm 2 as interpreting what happened to Jesus the night he was arrested, his trials, and his crucifixion. They interpret it according to Psalm 2. And I think that's what you see clearly here is that... And I think initially until I started looking at this, in my mind, and I don't know why, maybe it's the familiarity aspect, I always just kind of thought, well, the Jews arrested Jesus. Yeah. And it wasn't like 200 soldiers there. It was like a group, because it's just Jesus. They they came with like (laughs) a a small group of policemen, please. Uh The Jews arrested Jesus, and when they had their little false trials, they took him to the Romans. Yeah. And then the Romans tried Jesus, and they wanted him to, because then the Romans could kill him. But I think what John shows us is that there's a conspiracy already going on. So when Judas comes with the opportunity to arrest him, I mean, there's no way Judas can procure Roman soldiers. Right. It's all this agreement's already been hatched, like this plan. And so the Roman soldiers go because there's already a plan that's okay. that's been agreed to some behind the scenes. Hmm. And then we see it unfold as these trials take place coming forward. Okay. And so we see the uh, the kingdom of man really conspiring against God, hmm. which has been going on since the very beginning. Right. And that's uh, the beginning. That's that shows us uh, Psalm Psalm two, beginning of Psalm two, anyway. Okay, all right. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's really interesting to think, like this is not just. It's not a mob, mm-hmm. that's coming to arrest Jesus. Like these are the official. It's, it's the peacekeeping force, right? right? I wonder if they thought that there was going to be a. A revolt there yeah. in the garden. They may have, yeah, yeah, um, but it seems like it's just Jesus and yeah, his eleven disciples. Yeah, that, that seems to be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that paints a different picture than what you usually usually get. Yeah. All right, so we've got the significance of the setting, the earthly kings, and third, we have a glimpse of the true king. Mm-hmm. All right, um, so you didn't bring this out. Um, it, my wife actually brought this to my attention she uses um what she used the gospel transform transformation bible mm. um and it's got it's got some good notes that kind of do the biblical theology and uh, in the notes it, it talked about david mm-hmm. um and when he goes into exile because of absalom mm-hmm. he crosses the kidron mm-hmm. valley yeah and he goes he goes east yeah um and so there 
I don't know if there's maybe a connection here. Yeah. Jesus crosses the brook Kidron. Yeah. Um, the, he's about to be betrayed, just like David was betrayed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know what your, your yeah, thoughts I mean, are, there may if, you, be, if you ran across any of that in your study. Yeah, and there's there's also, there's other things I found, too, about okay. the brook Kidron. I mean, it's because of where it is, it right. kind of it comes up a lot in, uh-huh. the, in the Old Testament. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's just there's just no way to bring out like everything in right. the amount of time. I mean, it's even significant for the future of uh, the earth. Okay. It appears that the brick hedron will become a flowing stream, and you can take it literal or uh, figurative. But God's communicating a, a garden paradise on earth, mm-hmm. and the brick hedron flows freely. 24/7. Yeah. Right now it's an intermittent stream. It's dry most of the year. Okay. And then it uh it'll flow with uh with winter rains. Some say uh during this time as Jesus crossed it, he would have walked through the blood of animals. I, I don't know that that to be true because okay. they say how many animals uh-huh. are sacrificed right. during Passover that it would flow down through and I would say I I don't know that to be true because yeah. I'd have to research that would technically make him unclean. Mm. According to the law, okay, uh, you know what I mean. Uh-huh. So that's not a fact that I could bring out. But right. yeah, there's. I mean, it's a. There's probably legitimacy to it. He's being rejected. He's being overthrown yeah. by his son, and he leaves and he heads across the brook. And yeah, okay. So we we see him exercising authority here. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when we say he's the king. Um, it's not just a title, right? Like he is the king, mm-hmm. right? So, how do we see that in in this passage? So, you have to just get in your mind and try to put yourself back on a dark night in this uh, garden, and all of these soldiers coming upon. I mean, like how intimidating would that be to anyone? Two hundred professional soldiers, and Jesus steps forward and <laughs> right. says, "Who? Like, who do you seek?" Uh-huh. He's not hiding, and right. uh, that probably surprised them, I bet, a little bit. Yeah. And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And then what he says is, I am, right? In our English, it's I am he, but really it's just I am. Yeah. And we know from going through John how significant the phrase is. It's a divine name, and he's taken it seven other times before this. Uh, the biggest, most explicit one would be before Abraham was I am, mm-hmm. and they knew what he was saying because it's same same two Greek words. Yeah, I I don't know why the ESV puts that that he there. Mm-hmm. I am he, mm-hmm. um, because it's it is the Greek words I am. Yeah, and there's theological significance to that. Yeah, that's God's name. That's the name that God gives to Moses. Yeah. He says, who, who do I tell them sent me from the bush? And he says, I am. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus takes that name uh, all throughout John, and here's another time where he says it explicitly. Yeah. Now, when he says it this time, I think, here's what, I mean, I think if you just don't try to explain it away, how do people... How else do you explain soldiers being so startled that they fall backwards yeah. down on the ground? <laughs> right. Well, they do what people do when they encounter God. Yeah. They fall down. That's what everyone does when they have a divine encounter. Right. Sometimes the text says they fell on the ground like dead men. Mm-hmm. But they fall backwards. And so you get it just you just it's like Jesus is giving you just a little glimpse like who's really who is really the true king of the earth here. Right. Like, who is really, who has the real power? 
Like they've come to them exerting human power. Human power always comes at the threat of death. And who who can threaten the most death? Well, those who have the biggest military. Mm-hmm. And here they come. I mean, this is and there's a little glimpse. These soldiers fall backwards when he just speaks. Right. And I, I think I think you just you can't miss it. Yeah. It's a it's just a picture that he is it's a it's a picture of what's going to happen when he returns. Yeah. That's kind of how I took it. Yeah, I just love the picture of them coming. They've got their swords and and they've got their torches and they're, you know, they've got their armor and they they come ready to arrest him and they they think that they've got all this this might behind them. Yeah. And he says, "I am," and they just topple over. Mm-hmm. I just love that picture. Mm-hmm. It. Uh, you remember at the beginning of uh, Lord of the Rings when they cut off the ring of uh, of Sauron at the at the beginning, it kind of explodes. Yeah, that's how I picture it. Like they just all just <laughs> fall, fall back like it's a shockwave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is a picture. You know, Psalm two is kind of in the background, and the latter part of Psalm two is a big warning. Right. That um, you need to kiss the sun. <laughs> right. Unless you be unless he destroys you. Yeah. And he has the power right now to do all of that. Yeah. It's hidden. That's the the great mystery of the incarnation is that all of the power, like you can't even say all of the power because his power is immeasurable. It's infinite. Um, he could, if he didn't want to do anything, call down angels mm-hmm. and they would just destroy all these people. <laughs> right. The other gospels say that. He could just speak again and disintegrate them. Yeah. Like, like they just... He has the ability to do any of that. He yeah. has all of that power and he's... It's really just gets to the humility of what he's doing in the incarnation, yeah, um, and really his mercy and grace, even that he has for these people that are about to arrest him, that he doesn't, that he right. is restrained, because he's on he's on mission, yeah, and nothing's going to take him off that mission. But there's like a little glimpse of what happens when he returns. He's no longer, you know, the 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 humble king who rides a donkey. Mm-hmm. He comes back riding a war horse, yeah, and those who have not made terms of peace with him, they perish. You've got to wonder what's going on in the, the minds of these guys. Like he speaks and they, they just all fall over. Right. Because they're picking themselves back up. Right. <laughs> they're still going to go through with it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it, it, again, it shows the depravity of man. Mm-hmm. Like they've, they're they're not unaware of of who this is that they're coming to arrest. Mm-hmm. Like they've heard the stories. I mean, he's been he's been doing um, these miraculous signs and wonders for three years, mm-hmm. and the stories have gotten around, and they're coming to arrest him. Uh, he says, "I am," and they all fall down, and they still get up and arrest him. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this. Here's something I didn't think about till you just said that. Yeah. He just raised a dead man to life. Right. And you remember the one thing when I was doing like some research they uh that I found is that Romans they didn't they didn't believe Zeus could raise the dead. Mm-hmm. So if they heard the rumor that he raised <laughs> right. a dead man, what do you what do you think they're thinking? Right. Like who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. Well, the Jews the Jews probably told him. Yeah. The Jews probably told him, "Don't worry about the rumors you've heard." Yeah. He does his uh, miracles by the power of the devil. Yeah. He's not really. He's not really a god. Yeah, I, you know you can imagine. Like what kind of conversations went on in the background? Right. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. But they still go through with it. They do. Right. Um, but uh, he's he is the one that has the authority. Right. I, I had a question 
I had a question as as you were going through this. Verse four, it says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Uh-huh. Do you think, again, we're, I mean, this is speculation, but he is, he is the incarnate son, and so uh-huh. he, he has laid aside his divine prerogative. Right. Like he, he lives as uh, a man, uh-huh. um, dependent upon the spirit. Right. Um, often I, I think that we, we think, um, this is because he knows everything. Mm-hmm. When we know from other places that Jesus, as in his incarnation, he doesn't know everything. Right. right? We've talked about how he didn't know English. And right. He he he's humbled himself, he, and he learns. That's how he. Right. He has a human mind. I, I think when when the lady who has the <clears throat> you know the discharge of blood touches him and he turns around and says, "Who touched me?" Yeah. I think he really is asking. Yeah, like, who touched me? Right, like I don't know who did it. Right. Um, I, I was wondering, do, do you think that he knew everything that was going to happen because he's he's read about his life in right. the Old Testament? Yeah, I think that's that's probably the best explanation, or else you end up falling into um, the. Uh, it, I don't want to use the word heresy, but it almost right. would. It, it, if Jesus cheats at times in his life, yeah. He's he's not really representing us, right? Right. Because he doesn't have the same temptations that we mm-hmm. do. So if things get really hard, and he just goes, "Okay, I'm going to pause my <laughs> my human nature for right. a minute, and I'm going to tap into my divine," because uh-huh. it's getting hard for me. Yeah. He doesn't do that. Right. Right. So in reality, it is probably, as you say, mm-hmm. can't know a hundred percent certain, but probably when he's when these statements like this are made, Jesus does know everything that's going to happen because he's sinless. Number one, he's what, what what happens to a human mind that's never known sin? Right. We have no idea. Right. Um, his intelligence level is probably much higher than all of ours, mm-hmm. untainted by sin. But he knows the scriptures perfectly, right? Uh, because he studied them, yeah. And so he knows, according to scripture, how all of this is going to take place. Yeah. And the Pharisees should know it all too. And he and he knows it's about him. He knows. It's he reads. Case. He reads Psalm two, and he knows. He knows it's about him. I'm I'm the son. Yep. Um, he knows Psalm 22. He, he knows, knows Isaiah 53. He knows he's the so Messiah. He kno- so he knows that he's the suffering servant. Right. So he knows they're going to pull my beard out. Right. Not because of divine knowledge, but because it's written and he believes. Yep. He does. Yeah. And so he, and it, it is amazing to think about when did it when did it take place? When did he learn because he did learn we've mm-hmm. talked about it before right. but it will just it messes with your mind to think that Jesus grew up like a baby and learned language <laughs> right. learned to read learned every and then he learned the scriptures and then sometime he learned and he realized who he was yeah that he was <laughs> right. he's divine yeah. he's God's son yeah it's it's amazing right now after he resurrects from the dead things are things are different right, right? he has a glorified body mm-hmm. right but in his in in his humiliation, yeah, right. He he's living as a human, mm-hmm. and it it will the incarnation will really. It's just it's very difficult for us to understand. Yeah, but he's living by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? By faith, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he believes the word of God. Yep. Um, because that's what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're called to believe the word of God. Mm-hmm. So where Adam. And Eve, they heard the serpent say, did God really say? And they rebelled. Jesus knew the word of God, mm-hmm. and he obeyed. Yep. 
right? That's um, right. And we're called to follow in his steps. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that was just a that was just a question. It is I, an interesting. I, it is thought of while uh, while you were uh, while you were speaking. Um, yeah. All right, so uh, so he's the he's the true king. But observation number four is we get a glimpse of the faithful high priest. Mm-hmm. All right, so where I don't see a priest in here, Jay. <laughs> where did you get where did you get uh, Jesus as high priest out of this passage? Yeah, um, so kind of reading from eighteen through his crucifixion. One of the, the themes that come up are the, this idea of king, who's a king, who the authorities. Right. So it's like a clash of authorities. Yeah. Kingdom is of God and kingdom is of man. Who's the king? Um, culminating with this incredible statement that Israel, what the Jews say, we don't have a king. Right. We'll get to that later, but that's a shocking statement, they say. Yeah. We have no king. Um, but there's also this element of the priesthood that comes up a few times. And I think that's a theme that kind of comes through here. And so what you see is Jesus preserving his people. And I think it's a picture for us of his faithfulness. So they go there probably to arrest all of them as insurrectionists, not just Jesus, but in taking control of the situation and forcing the question, Mm -hmm. whom do you seek? Yeah, Um, They they say it twice, Jesus of Nazareth. So he's like, okay, if you seek me, let these men go. Yeah. And uh, the shocking thing is they let them go. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it's yeah. Why? Right. Why do they? Why do you do that? Yeah. Maybe because they're scared because he just knocked them all down. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh, these armed armed people, these armed soldiers, listen to an arm unarmed man that they're there to arrest. Right. They listen to him. They obey him. Yeah. Let these men go. They let them go, and uh, that's. I think we see a picture there of, of Jesus, his faithfulness to his people, because he this the text says this is to fulfill what he said, and what he said was that was in his prayer in John seventeen. Mm-hmm. I've kept all, you know, he he's kept all of it and hadn't lost one except the son of destruction, except Judas, because that was predestined to take place. And so I think there's we're meant to see a picture of the type of faithfulness that he has to his people, that he's ensuring their safety. This time, he's ensuring their safety and their harm that would come from human authorities. Right. Uh, but what he does is he's faithful to his people, and he keeps them safe from the wrath of God. Yeah. And he doesn't lose any of his people. So I think there's just a picture of that here, yeah. that he's faithful to his own. Right. He, he does what he has to do to ensure their safety. Yeah, he's he's interceding for them mm-hmm. and representing them. They mm-hmm. they come for all of them, and he's the one that gets taken. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's uh, that's good. I I love the I love that you brought that out. That they listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> he's, like, he's, he's got this authority. Yeah. And he uh, he tells them to. L- Luther says the greatest miracle of the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. That these armed soldiers listen to this, <laughs> who you know. Is just a regular Jew right. who has no swords. Yeah. Like, well, he does. He's not armed. Peter's apparently right. armed. Don't don't tell us what to do. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But but they listen. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Okay. Um, fifth observation: We have the worldly man. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine who that would be. In yeah. This, in this story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, before you get to that, before you get to who who the worldly man is. Do you find it interesting that we don't get much of Judas's betrayal in John's gospel? 
I mean, yeah. he's there. Mm-hmm. He leads them, but there's no there's no kiss of identification. Right. Yeah, there's no you know rabbi. Mm-hmm. Is there? Do you think there's a reason for that? Is there some theological reason why John's doing this, or yeah, is, it, is it just a case of again he doesn't write everything that right. happens? John, John, I think is driving at uh, different themes. Like the other right. gospels, I, John wrote after the other gospels. Right, like he's probably read them. Uh-huh. He's writing to communicate uh, different theological themes. Right, like there, in my mind, there's Romans and there's the Gospel of John. Okay, like if you want big biblical mm-hmm. theology, yeah, and then of course Hebrews, which you're going to do, but um, Romans and John, yeah. they have these great themes of predestination, uh, grace. I mean, it's packed full of this type of stuff, and right. then also in John, it's. Uh, He's not so much focused on Judas as he is focused on the other people. Yeah. Because if you go to those other arrest narratives, you're not going to catch that idea of these kingdoms of men mm-hmm. coming against Jesus and then the picture of the king, yeah. uh, who's really the king here. Um, one guy titled this sermon, uh, might have been Boyce, I can't remember, Who Arrests Who. <laughs> okay. I thought that was that was a pretty neat title. Uh-huh. But he's got like ten sermons in this section. Okay, <laughs> like what are you doing? <laughs> okay, yeah. I don't know how long. I wonder how long he preached for. It couldn't have been that long. Yeah, maybe it was. I don't know. Who arrested? I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, yeah. I just thought it was interesting. You, you. I mean, Judas is here, right? But he's just kind of a minor role. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's just kind of a bystander. He to, kisses to Jesus. That yeah. happens, but he doesn't. He doesn't kiss Jesus in John. He, it's where we get the term "kiss of betrayal," right? Uh huh. Yeah. Judas comes up, kisses Jesus. Right. So it's not Judas that you're you're observing as the worldly, yeah, man. The worldly who, man. Who who is it? Peter's the worldly man. Right. Because again, remember what is happening in this whole section, and it comes out with Pilate. It's the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of man fights a certain way. Jesus and his kingdom fight a different way. Yeah. And that's what Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. Mm-hmm. If it were, my people would be fighting already, right. but my kingdom's not of this world. And what we see here is Peter fighting, not according to Jesus' kingdom, but taking out a sword, trying to chop a dude in the head, right? right? <laughs> like, he's he's trying to drop that yeah. sword, like, split this guy's head in half, uh-huh. and he misses, apparently, and slices off his right ear. Right. So... You know, it's God's providence, probably, because had He done that, the swords would have come out, and then right. it had become a stab festival in the garden. You know, and right. Jesus would have had to like stop it all somehow. somehow. Right, right. But because this is a ca- this is a capital offense. Yeah. I mean, like you you brought out this is the servant of the high priest. This isn't a nobody. I imagine He picked him out on purpose. Yeah, He's probably like looking around. He's like. I know who did this. Uh-huh. It's the high priest. Yeah, and he's like, "There's a servant." Yeah, whack. You know, tries to tries to get him. Yeah, I like to think of Peter. You know, he's he's always the guy that talks a big game, but he always is. He just comes off as kind of a buffoon. Yeah, like the rest of us. Like he speaks before he knows what he's saying. I like to think, like here's a fisherman. Like he went and got this sword on the you know the down low. <laughs> And there he just he brings it out of nowhere, and he has no idea how to use it. Mm-hmm. And he he aims, and all he does is cut off this guy's ear. Yeah, like that's that's kind of the picture that I have of of Peter. Yep, it's <laughs> and apparent. You know, obviously, as soon as he did it, Jesus had to stop. Yeah. somehow, right? And he stopped it all before it got out of hand. Right, and, and again, uh, his authority. Right, and then Jesus heals his and ear. He, put, he puts his ear back on. 
He could, yeah. And here's another here's another thing that just boggles the mind. These guys see him put a man's severed ear back on his head, and they still arrest him. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you would think they'd be like, "All right, we don't want <laughs> we don't want any trouble. <laughs> Let's yeah. just pretend this didn't." Can you happen. imagine what's going on? Like some of them probably, you know, that meme where that little puppet like looks at it. <laughs> the soldiers are probably like, "Yeah." Like here's like <laughs> here's here's Malchus the human Mr. Potato Head yeah. you know Jesus just putting his ear back on mm-hmm. and they still arrest Jesus yeah it's uh yeah it it's just it's it, when you when you step back and think about it there's a lot of rather humorous things that are mm-hmm. going on here um, just the foolishness of man remember when when we go to Psalm two when when man is um, they're rebelling and they're saying we're going to break our bonds. What is God doing? Yeah, He's laughing. He's laughing at them mm-hmm. because it's so stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you, what do you think you're doing? Mm-hmm. There, this is an impossibility, and so God is laughing at their rebellion. And you see, just Jesus is just um, over and over and over again proving that He's the one that has the authority here, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> they're not coming against just some other guy yeah like here is the king mm-hmm. and they still they still rebel they still arrest him and they're still going to put him to death yeah yeah um, but it's foolishness because god has established him mm-hmm. as the king yeah yeah <clears throat> and peter shows he's still wor- he's a worldly man yeah he's worldly the world's in him he's mm-hmm. in the world despite being with jesus for three years i think yeah. again it shows us how completely impotent we are without the holy spirit yeah we're hopeless right Without regener- without the regenerative work of the spirit in our lives, yeah, and he's made this. He set himself up for this by making these incredible claims. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to die. They'll all fall away, but I won't. <laughs> right. I'm willing to die for you. Yeah. Well, he's willing to fight, and this is what I, I tried to bring out. Peter's willing to fight according to the ways of the world for yeah. Jesus. He'll take a sword out and be willing to go to battle and die. Yeah. And tons of non-believers have the same zeal, mm-hmm. right? The people who flew. Uh, the planes into the twin towers show mm-hmm. that right. Like being willing to to die through violence yeah. doesn't actually prove anything. Mm. Any people have done that for millennia. Right. That's fighting according to the ways of the world. Yeah. Jesus' way is different, and that's what he tells Pilate. Yeah. And Peter demonstrates he's not willing to do that, and we know that because of what's coming next week. He's not willing to follow the way of Jesus to humble himself to to be abused. To come under uh, unjust treatment, right? To um, to not retaliate with violence, but but be abused even to the point of death, right? That's how Jesus' kingdom will grow. That's how His kingdom infiltrates and overtakes the kingdom of man. Yeah, right. Right now, right when He returns at the end, it's a different story. But now, for His people, that's Christ's kingdom. That's how his kingdom fights. Peter is not willing to do that yeah. because he's a coward. Mm. He, he's scared to die, but yeah. he's not scared to fight yeah. and die. Mm. And that's a different thing, right? right. Yeah, it, it is easier to, uh, to fight than it is to suffer the reproach and abuse of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's easier for Christians to go onto you know, some kind of atheist Facebook page and just blast them as a keyboard warrior um 
but it's a lot harder to suffer the abuse um, and the the uh, just the insults. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we we definitely see that with Peter. I mean, there's there's a little bit of Peter in all of us, right? right? And that's <clears throat> that's the big the big temptation I think is to always fall back into fighting the world according yeah. like the world's ways, right? Like even if you have a good and noble cause, yeah. Like this is true, it's right. I'm fighting for the gospel, yeah. but if you if you fight according to the world's ways, you've lost already, right? And you brought out uh, we've talked about this before. Um, you you brought out where where um, we want to see abortion abolished, mm-hmm. right? And we've we have made our position very clear. Um, we're we're not about incrementalism. We think that it's wicked. Um, you do not murder uh, applies to unborn babies, and uh, so we would call upon um, all those in authority, the lawmakers, to obey God and stop the slaughter of of the innocent. Mm-hmm. But we've had to pull back some from our involvement with certain groups because their tactics are according to the ways of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, a great example of, of what you're talking about. Yep. That we can't, even though the cause is just, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're on the same side of the issue, but the tactics have to be godly. They have to be biblical. Um, and so uh, maligning and, and, um, and slandering um, politicians and um, you know having distorted pictures of them um, as if they're they're literally the ones ripping babies apart mm-hmm. but that's not that's not a, a godly tactic or doxing them right yeah <laughs> right mm-hmm. yeah um, that's that's not the way that Christians should fight right um, we fight with the word mm-hmm. we fight with the gospel right um, trusting God to uh, to fight for us, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was a that was a good example. Uh huh. And I'm sure we could spend <laughs> sure. a lot of time talking yeah. about different ways in which Christians are tempted to fight according to the world. Yeah. And we just lash out with our sword, just like just like Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It. We should. We shouldn't be. You shouldn't be able to pin down a Christian on an issue, right, or an idea, like yeah. and say they're always going to fall here. And the tendency today, I think, is that people will think, well, um, Christians are always associated with uh, conservatism. And I try to bring out how historically uh-huh. these terms conservatism or progressivism, yeah. they would switch. Because if right. you go back to the slave trade, Christians would be progressive. Right. They wouldn't be conservatives. They're not trying to conserve the culture. They're trying to transform it. Yeah. So in 100 years from now, uh, or even closer, I mean, it's happened so quickly— We'll be the ones trying to progress culture because yeah. the culture we live in now is totally absurd. <laughs> right, it has no moral foundation whatsoever. Yeah, so there's nothing to conserve here. Right now, you talk about conservatism and the Constitution. Yeah, we understand that, but yeah. um, soon, what people will fight for is no, the LGBTQ movement is right. And that's been going on for fifty years. We like this society. Well, yeah. Christians will be fighting according to hopefully 
the Bible and the kingdom of God, right. trying to progress society out of that mm-hmm. toward the kingdom of Christ. So we just have to be careful we don't align uh, perfectly. At various times, we'll align more with other groups than others, but they're not our groups, right? Yeah. We have to keep that in our mind. Ours is the kingdom of God, and that's what we're always working for. We're not working for any particular side. Now, obviously, on this side, or where we're at in history and in time, I think conservatism aligns more with the Bible. Right? Yeah. If you're if you're for the classical sense of personal freedom, mm-hmm. uh, liberty, the traditional family, right, uh, things like that, or yeah. we'll say traditional. Let's call it the biblical, family. the biblical family. God's right. <laughs> God's design for male and female. Yeah. At this point in history in America, that side falls more towards conservatism. But things change so quickly, right? The, right. There, are, you can already see the conservatives saying, "Can we win elections?" Mm-hmm. Holding to this, right. and they're softening on all of these right. um, social issues. Yeah. So we just have to make sure, and that's what you've seen. I think that's harmed. Um, well, I don't think you can really harm. You can't harm the church. You can hurt maybe your witness temporarily. People have been willing on both sides to jump in. I'm, I'm, I'm conservative. I'm liberal for these reasons. I don't agree with all of them, but they'll fight. Right. And they'll begin to fight according to the ways of the world, and then they'll even fight each other. Yeah. When Christians shouldn't be doing that, we should be saying, uh, "Well, I'm fighting for the kingdom of God in this world, and I'm not going. I'm not going to engage in that type of worldly behavior." It could be even more serious than that. The one example I brought out was from eighty seventy. I had never thought about this before until kind of researching this. In eighty yeah. seventy, the choice that was made. For the Jewish Christians, because there were tons of Jewish Christians in Israel in AD 70, the Roman Empire came to to totally decimate Israel. Right? It's a total massacre. They see there's a siege goes on for I can't remember how long the siege goes on. It was about three and a half years. Yeah. So people are starting to like eat each other and stuff <laughs> right. in Jerusalem, and yeah. then then when they come in, they totally they just totally destroy the city. Mm-hmm. The Christians at that time had the choice, would they stay and fight with the sword and protect their homeland? Because, you know, some of them were patriotic, they're Jewish people, or will I will I follow a different way uh, and follow Christ's command? And he told, he told Christians in Matthew 24, when you see this happen, you need to leave. Right. And they obeyed. And so all the Christians lived. Yeah. They were spared, and they took the gospel out to the surrounding um, regions, and the gospel spread throughout. So I thought that was interesting. There was the choice, right? They had the choice. Do I fight according to the kingdom of man, protect my homeland, or do I follow Christ and pursue this this other kingdom mm. and be willing to let my own home even fall? Right. Big choice. Yeah. And I think Christians always, we need to have that in the back of our mind as you see our culture changing. We're not called to take up ways of violence um, our job is to be Christians in whatever society we find ourselves in, right? America won't stay around forever. Right. Eventually, all kingdoms fall. Um, but but our task is to is to is to fight according to Christ's uh, ways yeah. in this world, which yeah. is which is the way of um, humility and um, being willing to suffer for the cause for His cause in the world, right? And that's sadly, George, going to be happening today in Afghanistan. Yeah, it just think just think about it. Uh, even the text that some of us have seen already today, 
Christians being surrounded by the yeah. Taliban. Yeah. And probably what they'll do is, uh, for the cause of the gospel, is they won't, they won't, um, they probably won't fight. And it's it's sad that many of them will probably be, uh, well, sad in our in our perspective, but for them, victorious, uh, as many of them will probably be with Christ today. Yeah. So that's Peter. Peter's uh, at this point in time, he's very worldly. Yeah. All right. Um, the last observation, observation number six, is the Father's cup. Uh-huh. And that's what Jesus says. He says, put, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Uh-huh. Yeah, just it will really boggle the mind when you think that uh, liberal and progressive Christians, how do they even arrive at interpreting G- <laughs> Jesus according to any way, yeah, right? right? Like, he came as a good example. Yeah. He came to show us how to fight against tyranny, uh, all of these crazy things. Mm-hmm. He came to side with those who are oppressed. Yeah. He's a good example. Like, I just don't get it. Like, if you're right. just reading the Bible, you, you the question, you go, well, what... What's a cup? And the, you start to look in the Old Testament. How is this terminology used in the Old Testament? Right. And the term. And, and of course, he he was our example. Sure. I mean, Peter brings that out. But what is the primary yeah. reason why Jesus died? Yeah. It wasn't primarily to show us how we're supposed to, you know, live under systemic oppression. Right. <laughs> right. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. It's to drink this cup, yeah. and so you, you know, if you look look through the Bible, what does this mean? Uh, and the cup, a cup, is is uh, stands for one's destiny, and usually it has negative connotations, meaning the destiny to fall under the wrath of God, mm. the wrath of God as it's poured out upon wicked and evil people. That's what the cup means, right? And so he says, "This is his purpose." And you know, Psalm eleven five six. I brought this one out. There are tons of them. It says the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Meaning, this is their destiny. Right. All right. This caused questions okay. in my community group. All right. To which I tried my best to explain okay but maybe when we're both in the same room we can all right we can really we'll cl- we can, we can really cl- we can really clarify okay right so so you're you're just reading straight from the text you're not you're not putting words into david's mouth mm-hmm. he says that god hates the wicked yep come on jay <laughs> <laughs> god loves everybody yeah and he loves everybody the same way yeah all right so we understand, so we're, we're reformed. Um, no one in my community group was thinking, you know, God loves everybody the same way. Mm-hmm. Like we, we understand there's distinguishing love, mm-hmm. right? Um, the, the question was, how can God love, love sinners and hate them at the same time? Mm-hmm. So what, what would you, how would you explain that? Because we know he has benevolent love. We talked about this um, when we were looking at Second Peter. Mm-hmm. Like he, he has been he he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Right, right. Uh huh. 
so his bent towards towards fallen humanity is one of love. God so uh-huh. loved the world. Right. Right. Um, but at the same time he hates the wicked. Right. So how, how do we how do we balance these? How do we understand that he he loves the world but he hates sinners? Mm-hmm. He hates the wicked. Yeah. Well, first thing that we would do is we would just read the the Bible verses that explain that, that yeah. just say that he does mm-hmm. and not try to explain them away. Yeah. And then we can maybe think about quality, uh, yeah. things in certain like qualities, like God is perfect in righteousness and goodness and moral purity. He created man as his divine image bearers without sin. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and then this quality overtook humanity, right? Not that, not that we became the victims of some disease, but that we ourselves became the disease. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I was kind of thinking about it this week. If you go to a bushel of apples, and you expect to pull out an apple, and you turn it over, and it's rotten, rotten mm-hmm. all the way out. What is your natural instinct? Right. That of revulsion, you revolt, yeah. you you abhor it, right? That's a word that God uses for <laughs> okay. sinners. Yeah, okay. And so this is God's uh, natural state of His uh, perfection and His holiness, okay. uh, because He is morally perfect and morally good. That which is uh, contrary to His nature, He abhors, mm. right? Yeah, it's uh, revolting okay. to Him, um, and anything less would be odd, really, if you think about it. Um, but he hates he he hates the wicked, and it's difficult for us because we interpret it according to our own hatred. Mm-hmm. I, be- I believe it is hatred. There's a way you can identify with it, but ours is to be overtaken by passions and emotions that um, are un- impure. Right. Right. We're se- we're usually we're selfish. We're unrighteous. Our hatred is a reflection of who we are, so we can't even identify with the hatred of God towards sinners. Um, God is not a human like us, and we ought not to interpret his hatred according to human hatred, right? Okay. Um, So that's one problem that we have, is um, we're fallen in our humanity, and all of our passions are tainted according to our nature. But none of God's are. God's hatred can never be said to be anything other than morally pure, righteous, good, and just, right? It's like an outgrowth of his righteousness. Yeah. Or it's the flip side of the coin, maybe, as you could say, of his perfection and his righteousness, that he always would feel this way um, about sin and the sinner. Um. Again, it's a complicated thing to, to try to think through and to understand. Right. Um, but it's a good thing, too. We and we know it's a good thing. I mean, you just the hit the, the Hitler illustration is the one I tried to, to bring out. Yeah. We want a God who thinks that who who feels this way. Right. Not just about uh, sin. The term is God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Yeah. But in the Bible, you can't separate the two. There's no right. separating them. Right. You sin because you're a sinner. Yeah. Right. You lie because you're a liar. You steal because you're a thief. Uh, all of these. 
And God says that he hates all evildoers, and you, destroy, and, and you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So the question I brought out is, does God, was God really sad when Hitler died? Right. And we know, like, no way. There's no way God could be that way. God's just and perfect. Yeah. So Hitler, the most violent and evil, wicked man maybe we can think of, uh, he loved violence and murder. He's a grotesque human being. He commits suicide, so he never faces human justice. So are we to think, according to the world standards, that God just hated Hitler's sin, but he actually loves Hitler? (laughs) Right. (laughs) There's no way, right? Yeah. No way. Right. God hates Hitler. Yeah. He hates him with an eternal, perfectly pure hatred. Right. That's right and just. Yeah. And so Hitler is suffering under the perfect hatred of God right now. Mm. Um, And that's a good thing. And yeah. we know it is. Right. It's hard for us to grasp, again, because we can't do what God does because we're not God. Yeah. And the big the big mystery of it all is how could he uh, love sinners at the same time? Mm-hmm. Because he... I think if we just if we take John, John three sixteen tells us that he loves sinners, and then when you look at the cross, you ought to see that as a demonstration. That's how John three three sixteen is trying to explain this to us, right? Um, or we can think of this as love, not that we love God, but he that he loved us, right? And he gave Christ for our sins. That while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. How? What it's the reason we struggle is because we're trying to think of God like a man, and He's not a man. He's not a human. From eternity past, God has loved sinners in His Son, right? And we we can't separate the two. You can never separate the two. God's predestined a people for Himself to be righteous in Christ, and these He's also loved eternally. How? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine, George. Yeah. Who? How? We don't know why. That's why it's called grace. Right. We don't deserve that. We deserve his wrath. Yeah. And I think that we we can view his hatred of sinners in the fact that we're made in God's image. Mm-hmm. We're we're meant to reflect the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And in our fallenness. When God sees us, He sees a distortion of His His image, right? And He hates that, yeah, because He loves His glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so when He sees humanity, um, in His wickedness, He sees something that is hateful. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, the mystery is that He takes pity on those that are corrupt, and um. Yeah, it, it it is. There is something of a mystery there. I mean, we we go back to John ten and we talk about the ways that we are loved. Mm-hmm. Jesus compares it to the love that He has in the Trinity. Yeah, and that's a great mystery because Ephesians two tells us that we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Yeah. Of course, we know you can't you can't really arrive at a true doctrine of this without the doctrine of election. Right, and then have time to even get into that in the sermon. Right. But God has chosen from eternity past a mass of fallen humanity to save for himself. So he has set his love on a people, undeserving, uh, before they ever did anything good or bad, of course, knowing that they would do only bad. Apart from his grace, they Mm -hmm. would only do bad. Right. And he's redeemed them in his son. 
it's uh, you can't come up with a reason why. <laughs> right. And that's why it's called grace. Yeah. We don't deserve for God to love us. Mm-hmm. He's decided to set his love on us, and his love is transforming in quality so that what he would be, uh, what would be uh, abhorrent to him, disgusting, um, he decides to set his love on that to transform it into something um, that is like his son. Mm. So we're unlovable, but he sets his love on us anyway and transform us into something that he's pleased with. Yeah, it's it's un- it's unbelievable, really. Right to think about it, and the fact is that it only happens because the cup that we deserve he right. gives to his son instead. Yes, yeah. God doesn't negate his hatred for our sin, like right. Jay and George's sin. Mm-hmm. Like God utterly hated us. Yeah. Eternal with an eternally with an eternally pure utter hatred. We were children of wrath. He hated he hated he hated us that right. way. Yeah. Um and Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in our place, yeah. which makes everything change. And now we uh God doesn't even see us in that. He sees us as his righteous, perfect son, right? Which is it's mind blowing. <laughs> right? But there's not any. There's not even any wrath left. Yeah. You can never think of something bad that happens to you as God, as God pouring out wrath on you. Yeah. Even something terrible, like it's loving discipline. That's all it can be because there's no wrath left. Right. For you to take it all. Yeah. That's that is um, <laughs> that's the best news that you could ever hear. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why this is why we would hold to you know definite atonement. Mm-hmm. Christ actually redeemed people, right? Um, individuals, um, and there's no wrath. There's there's no God is not angry with Christians anymore, and His wrath will not be poured out on them because Jesus didn't just take a sip of the cup, right? Um, he the cup was turned upside down, and he, he you know he put his finger in and. Yeah. Got the remains. Like it there is no wrath left. He drank all of God's wrath. Yeah. It's important that you add this though, for his people. Right. Right. Um, or you could say it this way for all of those through history who would ever turn to him yeah. by faith. Because right. he, he uses both term terms. He invites everyone. And so anyone who wants come to him freely. Yeah. He also uses the terms that I lay down my life for the sheep. That he knows his own. Yeah. And it ha- he says, it, "I know my it, own." And it ha- it has to be that way. Like if if our if our our understanding of of Christ drinking the cup, drinking all of God's wrath, if it is applied universally, then everyone goes to heaven. Yes, right. That's because right. because Jesus has drank the wrath of God. There is no wrath left. It is an actual substitutionary atonement. There can be no hell. <laughs> right. Hell must be empty. Yeah. And I, so I would I would even add this. I mean, you talk about particular redemption. Uh-huh. If Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath dry universally, yeah. the devil will never go to hell. Mm. The Antichrist isn't in, will never go to hell. Okay. No one goes to hell. Right. There is no hell. Yeah. And we know that's not true because Revelation tells us the beast and the false prophet, Satan. Um, right. A mult, great multitude goes are they go to hell. They they die the second death. Yeah. So what he drank dry 
cannot be universally applied. Right. It's not universalism. Mm-hmm. He didn't die for angels. Mm-hmm. He didn't die for Satan. Right. He only died for those given to him by the Father. Right. <laughs> yeah, it has, George, did it we, has to be. Did it George, has to did, be. We, did, did we just... Did we just settle the Armenian Calvinism <laughs> debate with the cup with Jesus drinking the cup? I mean, I would think that it would, but we know from church history. I mean, five hundred years of of people arguing <laughs> right. over this. It's. I mean, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. It's it, unless you have a different view of the atonement, and right. and that's what Armenians do, mm-hmm. right? It's. That they have the governmental theory, they don't have penal substitutionary atonement. Right. They have to, they have to change what Jesus actually did on the cross, mm-hmm. that to make people savable, not to actually save them. But right. that's not what the biblical witness is. Right. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right. Not make them savable, mm-hmm. but he actually will save them, um, and that that simply has to be particular. You just have to ask the question, what did Jesus think he was doing? Right. That's it. Yeah. What has he told us all along through John? Yeah. Over and over and over and over. He's right. got a people that uh-huh. the Father's given to him. Right. Whoever the Father gives to him will come to him. He will raise them up on the last day. Mm-hmm. He gives eternal life to whomever he wills. The right. Father has given him that authority. He lays down his life for the sheep. Yeah. He knows his own, his own know him. And then he says... He's going to drink this cup. Yeah. And it's not for him. (laughs) Right? Right? Yeah. It's he, Jesus seems to be in John, knowing like that he knows he's going to die for his people's sins. Yeah. Hey, I'm convinced. Yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to convince me. I'm I'm convinced yeah. uh, that this is what the the scriptures are teaching. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, all right. You got anything else to add to Jesus drinking the cup? Uh, I mean, I would just say, you know, if you're if you are not a Christian, why why would you not ever come to Jesus? Yeah. If he invites everyone to come, if you're a sinner, he says he dies for sinners, and he open he he openly invites anyone to come yeah. to him. Right. Why would you not come to him? Right. For what reason? He is he is so um, attractive mm-hmm. that he, he is attractive. He's attractive in this this he, passage. I mean, you've you've got you've got the these these soldiers coming to arrest him, and he steps forward. Like here is true man. Mm-hmm. Um, here is the one who has all authority. Like he he has nothing but his word. Right, and he speaks, and they fall over. He speaks, and they obey. Um, he willingly steps between this, you know, this this cohort and his eleven friends, and says, "Let them go." Mm-hmm. And he'll he'll he willingly goes with them, mm-hmm. but they don't have to wrestle into the ground. He he goes with them um, to be mistreated and abused, and he he dies um, for. His friends, mm-hmm. for his friends. I mean, this this is, um, I mean, utterly attractive. Like, this is a guy that's worthy to be followed. This this is a man that is that's worthy to give your entire life to to trust everything to, mm-hmm. uh, to not hold anything back. Um, 
uh, yeah, the the invitation is come. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's not just saying that he'll he'll you know make you savable. He's saying he'll save you. Mm-hmm. Like he he is the hero that will save you. Yeah. Um, so come to him. Mm-hmm. And it, and if you're a Christian, you know you don't have to run around wondering whether God's for you or against you. Yeah. Like, don't do that. <laughs> right. God's for you. Yeah. He's not going to turn on you. Mm-hmm. Jesus already drank the cup dry. Um, all he has for you now is is, uh, is love. Even when you fall, even if you fall into sin, and you may say, "Well, I've done things that would be shameful to Christ." Well, sure, like all of us have, we're all imperfect disciples. Um, but that doesn't mean his he becomes wrathful toward you. Yeah, he only has love. So if you return, if you return to him. And confession, all you'll find is the loving embrace of a father. Yeah. That's it. That's good. That is good, and that's good news. That's <laughs> great news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Jay. It's good to get, it's good to be back. Yep. Good to be back uh, with you for Text Driven Tuesday. Hopefully, this was beneficial for you as we went through John eighteen one through eleven. Um, we'll be back uh, Friday for Free for All Friday. So I uh, want to invite you to uh, to join us for that. Uh, be sure to go back and listen to Jay's sermon from Sunday on uh, this passage. It helps uh, goes together with what we've been talking about today. And and, uh, of course, we want this to be beneficial for you. Uh, Be sure to like, share, subscribe, uh, get the word out. And uh, as always, we hope that this helps you to become more and more conformed to Christ.